consider it good to be grounded in the doctrine of God. How deep its riches, how immaculate the knowledge of our Lord. His understanding is unsearchable, his judgments irrefutable, and his ways inscrutable. Let us crown the God of glory and all honor to his name. For who do you know who has the mind of the Lord? Or who can counsel or give advice to him? Who has given him gifts as if all things were not his? God is already satisfied in himself. Have you not known or heard? He is everlasting, the creator from the beginning to the end of the earth, but created us for his own pleasure. Rejoicing in his works, his reign endures forever. God is the majestic king who loves equity and justice, yet he extends his heart to humanity in unconditional covenant. He pours out his wrath on the unjust who deserve the indictment, but only his son renders sinners to be righteous. This was for his fame and for the exalting of his throne. If you've received salvation, it was by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, Soli Deo Gloria. All right, all right. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn with me to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11 for our last lesson on the five solas. And so as you turn to Romans 11, I want to uh, direct your attention there in the notes and just think a little bit about this one question that we've really been asking over these past 14 weeks, and it's really this, how does God justify the ungodly? Because here's the thing, if we just run around saying, faith alone, Christ alone, Scripture alone, glory to God alone, we'll look weird and sound weird. Because those things are meaningless. Those prepositional phrases that we've been studying are meaningless if they're not attached to something. And what they're attached to is how does God justify, how does He declare right in His sight people that are undeserving and even unwilling to acknowledge who He is. And the answer is sola gratia. We saw last week, by freely choosing to give the ungodly the gift of His grace alone. Salvation is totally of His doing. Isaiah put it this way, For my own sake, for my own sake I will act. For how can my name be profaned and my glory I will not give to another? 1 Corinthians 1, 20, uh, 20, uh, 29, we've, we've saw this again and again in verse 30 actually. By His doing... We are in Christ Jesus. I like what Luther says on this. The inner man 
cannot be forced to do out of his own free will what he should do, except the grace of God change the heart and make it willing. So God justifies the ungodly freely, but but he does it through Christ Jesus in the gospel. And so the second answer to this question is Christus solus. By graciously exchanging the sin of the undeserving for his righteousness in Christ alone. We saw that in Romans 5, the tale of two men. How in Adam we get sin, death, and condemnation. But through Christ alone we get righteousness, justification, and life, and grace superabounding through Christ Jesus. But how do we receive that? What is the means of receiving? How does God justify the ungodly? Sola fide, by justly declaring the ungodly to be justified by faith alone. God looks at Christ and He is just because He's poured out His wrath on all sin. And yet He can turn to us and in Christ, by faith, we receive His righteousness He counts Christ's righteousness as ours, and He counts our sin as Christ. That's amazing. That is amazing. But how would we ever know this? How do we know how God justifies the ungodly? Sola Scriptura. By uniquely revealing this good news according to Scripture alone. No one would ever come up with this. No one, that's why we have a hard time understanding it, because it doesn't make sense to us. We can't figure this out. You're not going to discover this at school. You're not going to discover this through science. You're not going to discover this by going up to a mountain and meditating on creation. There's only one way we know how God justifies the ungodly, and that's by Scripture Alone, And even that is a gift of God's grace, is it not? If God had not chosen to reveal Himself, we never would know Him. We would never know Him. So, the way God justifies the ungodly, as we've studied in this series, is by grace alone, in Christ alone, through faith alone, according to Scripture alone. But what is His ultimate goal? Why did he do all this? And that's what we see today. Soli Deo Gloria. By completely ensuring that all the glory goes to him alone. Probably uh, one of the verses that uh, I keep have kept seeing in this study is this one in Jeremiah. Jeremiah 9, 23 through 24. And it says this. Thus says the Lord. Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast of his might, and let not the rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts, boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth. For I delight in these things declares the Lord. And yet what's interesting is Paul loved that passage of Scripture, and he constantly refers to it because listen to 1 Corinthians 1, 30-31. Again, a passage we've read many times in this series. Listen to what Paul says. But by His doing, you are in Christ Jesus, 
who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that just as it's written in Jeremiah, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. The whole idea is this. The very things that the Lord said in the Old Testament, hey, boast in me and what I can do, all those things are now found in Christ Jesus. And if we're going to glory in something, if we're going to boast in something about our salvation, we need to boast in one thing and one thing only, and that's the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Revealed to us by Scripture alone, given to us by grace alone, entered into our life by faith alone. And so again and again, Paul says, look, I have nothing to boast of. I boast in only the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't boast in anything that I have done. I boast only in what God is doing through me in Christ. And it makes us appreciate, I think, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10 a little better. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast, no one may glory in what they have done. For we are His workmanship. It's all His doing. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. I really agree with John Piper, and I think I have these quotes in your notes. The ultimate aim of the gospel is the display of God's glory. Or as Calvin said, the glory of God shines indeed in all creatures on high and below, but never more brightly than in the cross. And that's really what we've been looking at through these weeks. But Luther, as he often does, hits it very powerfully and very directly when he says this, to trust in works is equivalent to giving oneself the honor and taking it from God to whom fear is due in connection with every work. And Calvin sums it up. Let our chief goal, O God, be your glory and to enjoy you forever. So how do we do that? How do we do, how do we give God alone all the glory? How do we do that? Well, the answer is here in Romans 11, 33 through 36. So let's read that together. Follow along in your Bibles, if you would, and let's see what Paul says. Oh, and that's like an exclamation. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who became his counselor, or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him, and through him, and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Soli Deo Gloria. Well, what is Romans 11, 33 through 36? The first thing I want you to see is this is a doxology. It is a doxology. It is a hymn of praise. You say, what is a doxology? I have the definition there. It's delighting in giving God the glory he deserves in word, in song, and in life. What Paul is doing here, this is a praise song. You can't hear the music, but it's there. 
It's a praise song. It is a hymn of worship and adoration that follows after 11 chapters of theology. And so why is it here? Well, it's here to do one thing. To remind us that theology should always lead to doxology. Theology should always lead to doxology. To the praise and worship of of God. As one man put it, our th- theology should sing like a hymn and not read like a telephone book. You see, theology is the study of God, and doxology is the study of glory. And when you accurately study God in the scriptures, you will see his glory, and the result will be what J.I. Packer, theologian J.I. Packer, says God's glory showing requires glory giving. And I hope in these 15 weeks, you've seen the glory of God. And in doing so, you want to show His glory and share His glory, which is very fitting on this third Sunday of Advent, when we're talking about the proclamation of the glory of God in Christ. In fact, Kirk uh, came to me last week and he said, man, we went to the, was it the Kaufman? where you heard the Kauffman Center and heard Handel's Messiah, and they handed out the Scriptures, and we're going through, and all of a sudden there's this climaxy verse where they're talking, through one man sin came, and through one man righteousness came. And it sounded like, I don't know if that was what you were thinking, I thought Kirk was going to jump up. And uh, he was just like, yes, this is what we've been studying. Oh, you you just want to express it. You should have done it, Kurt. That had been interesting. You should have done it. Haven't your heart ever sung, wanted to sing, wanted to shout in the study of God? That's why Romans 11, 33 through 36 is here. Because for 11 chapters, Paul has been expounding that justification is by grace alone, in Christ alone, by faith alone according to Scripture alone, and he just can't take it any longer. He needs to shout and glorify God because ultimately it's all for the glory of God alone. Here's how Chuck Swindoll introduces this passage. In the last six verses of Romans 11, Paul stands atop a spiritual peak, looking across the vast regions of God's righteousness, his justification in in chapters 1 through 5, his sanctification in chapters 6 through 7, our future glorification of sinners who have turned to him in chapter 8. He looks at his merciful election and sovereign predestination of people saved from sin for a life with himself in chapters 9 through 11, and he can't fully grasp the unscalable mysteries of God, but He can glory in them. And that's really the message of these verses. So, what is it that God has shown us through the five solas? Well, I want you to see four reasons, four reasons why God alone gets all the glory for our salvation. And it's right here in these verses. And the first one is this, God's will in saving the undeserving is unfathomable. God gets the glory because it blows our minds. His will in choosing to save anyone, much less me, is unfathomable.
unfathomable. Look at verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Let's look at the first part of that. Depth here speaks of something that is immeasurable. And when we think of depths, it's too deep for us to ever get to the bottom of, but it also speaks of a horizontal reach. It God's, God's glory in choosing to save anyone is deep and wide. You know, we saw that deep and wide. I've been singing that a little bit this week. You see, it's so deep we can't plumb the depths, and it reaches so far that we can't imagine it. We can't imagine it. Basically, what Paul's saying right here in this verse is what Isaiah said in Isaiah 55, 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Or as Paul said in Ephesians 3, what is the breadth, length, and height, and depth And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with the fullness of God. So the focus here is on God and God alone. And when I see this verse and I see that, oh, you want to think in terms of, oh, my God. Good messages from the Bible, good preaching and good teaching should lead us to always one conclusion. Oh, my God, you are so great. You are so awesome. And so here's three declarations of how God's will is so awesome in saving us. Number one, oh my God, the mercy of your riches are unfathomable. The mercy of your riches is unfathomable. He talks about riches. I'd circle that. In your Bible, riches are spoken of throughout the book of Romans. We, I wish we could look at each of these verses because it just washes over you. Here's what riches is in the book of Romans. Paul is referring to the great mercy and grace of God that he pours out on undeserving sinners. And the riches of the salvation that come with his forgiveness. We've seen that in Romans 5. Look, uh, turn back with me to Romans 5.17. Here's some of the riches of His mercy. Romans 5.17. Remember this verse? For if by the transgression of the one, that is Adam, death reigned through the one, much more. There's that abundance idea. Those who receive the abundance of grace, the riches of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Drop down to verse 20, chapter 5, verse 20. We saw this. The law came in so that transgression would increase, but where sin increased, guess what? Grace superabounded all the more. How rich is God's grace? It even reigns through righteousness to eternal life. Listen, we should stand back and give God glory for the abundance of the overflowing, the superabounding riches of His mercy to us. The glory of God's will in saving the undeserving sinners like us is seen in the riches of His mercy and grace 
that are poured out to us. Man, you could go to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 2 are full of the riches. Listen to just Ephesians 2, 4 through 6. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places. Listen, God didn't just save us. He identified us, united us with Jesus Christ. We don't live a defeated earthly life. We are one in Christ. Man, that's all due to the riches of His mercy. But secondly, He says, Oh my God, the mystery of your wisdom. How God gives His mercy is truly a mystery because His wisdom is unfathomable. Look at what he says, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. And again, Paul has talked about God's wisdom. Turn to Romans chapter 1. Turn to Romans chapter 1, the first place in the book of Romans where God talks about wisdom reflects very poorly on us. Look at Romans chapter 1. Look at verses 21 through 25. Here's what what man's wisdom does with God's glory. Look at Romans 1, 21 through 25. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. In other words, they failed to give God all the glory. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. That's man's wisdom. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Immorality is always tied to idolatry, a rejection of God's sovereignty, and a rejection of God's glory. Because they exchanged the truth about God, theology, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the Creature. What you believe influences how you respond to God. What you believe about God determines how you live for God. So man's wisdom says things like this regarding salvation. We don't need God. We can be God ourselves and determine our own destiny and eternity. I don't need to go to church. I don't need to learn the Bible. I don't need that stuff. We're smarter than that. But we are fools when we say that. We don't need God's mercy and grace. We mean good enough on our own. That's man's wisdom. God may give us enough grace to get us started, but we can finish the job on our own. Those are all man's wisdom regarding salvation. But here's what man's wisdom does. It ends up rejecting, rejecting God or diminishing God and His grace and ends up setting ourselves up. And who we end up boasting in is us and not in God. But don't think this kind of foolish thinking is just for lost people. In Romans chapter 11, verse 25, Paul warns us and says, Look, you who are saved... 
You who are saved by grace through faith, don't get puffed up. And boy, that's a danger, isn't it? Our culture is getting so divided and it's very easy to look as sin begins to become more manifested, as foolish thinking is multiplied through social media. It's easy to become arrogant and proud and kind of think we're smarter, we're better. We chose better than others. And the reality is what you're seeing is what's in your heart and what's in my heart. And we aren't any better. And we aren't any wiser. The only reason we can know better is because God in His mercy was wise enough to save us. Give us the grace to comprehend that. You see, Paul will actually end the entire book of Romans by saying that our salvation is a mystery that only God could reveal, and therefore all the glory belongs to the only wise God. In Romans 16, 27, this massive book, Paul once again lets his theology erupt into doxology, and he says, to the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. Why is God's wisdom in saving us an unfathomable mystery? Why can't, mystery? Why can we not figure this out on our own? I can't teach you these, these ideas. I've given you the scripture. But I want you to see that wisdom is concealed in Christ. God's wisdom in salvation is unfathomable because it's concealed in Christ. And here at Christmas, Christ comes as a baby in a manger in the backwater little town of Bethlehem. How in the world could God be doing anything like that? But that's God's wisdom, isn't it? It was concealed. And Jesus came, a carpenter's son, who Scripture says his looks, he wasn't even handsome. And for Americans, that means I don't need to listen to you. I doubt if he was tall, handsome, or all the things that the world measures as a person to listen to. No, the wisdom was concealed. The wisdom of God was concealed in the, fr the fragileness, the weakness of a human being. Sinless, yes, but still a human being. Number two, because God's wisdom in salvation was displayed on the cross. God's wisest thing God did to save us was the most despicable, humiliating, brutal thing that man could ever conceive. And yet in the cross, the wisdom of God is made manifest. And mankind says, pooey on that. That's foolishness. And we as Christians, we can get too wise in our own eyes. Begin to think that we can help people with the Bible that is closed. And we think that we can begin to help people with a Christ who is diminished and more like us rather than like the sovereign God that He is. And pretty soon our gospel is not a gospel any longer. Because we, listen, you're not going to get applause from the world for preaching Christ. You're not going to get attaboys from the world 
for proclaiming the cross. You're not going to get people to think you're a great guy by telling them they're sinners and I'm one too. When you tell people your best life is not now, it's a life of suffering and then glory, you're not going to sell a lot of books. You're not going to necessarily fill an auditorium. Because God's wisdom was displayed on a cross. Third, God's wisdom in salvation is predestined for whomever whomever He chooses. God's wisdom is predestined for whomever He chooses. This is the mystery of the wisdom of God. And, And I can't open that whole can of worms here, but it's reality. And the verses that I have there support that. And then fourthly, the wisdom... In salvation is revealed to everyone by the word of the gospel through his church. There's where the wisdom is God is found. It's found in Christ. It's found in the cross. It's found in God's unconditional choice to save some out of the many. And it's found in God's church through the preaching of the gospel, like Paul and Barbara Frizzell are doing to all peoples, proclaiming God's wisdom. And then three, oh my God, the majesty of your knowledge is unfathomable. Paul here links wisdom and knowledge. And I think knowledge here is not just the fact that God knows everything. We know God knows everything. But I think what he's saying here is he's talking about God's knowledge in his sovereign and gracious purposes before the foundation of the world to know and to choose some for salvation. We have a hard time with that. But it's what we see in Romans 8.29. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined. We see it in Romans 11.2. God has not rejected His people Israel whom He foreknew. The idea is this. God is sovereign and majestic. He knows what He's doing. He's wise in what He's doing. And here's what you want to not miss. He's merciful in what He's doing. Okay? So, if you get freaked out by God's sovereign knowledge and His sovereign working in salvation, you must always balance that with His riches of His mercy. He's not mean. He's not sitting up there going, eeny, meeny, miny, moe. He's not dangling people over hell and throwing them here and throwing them there. No, He's a sovereign God who's working in wisdom and knowledge with the richness of His mercy to save us. Wow. Well, having given God the glory for His sovereign will that accomplished His salvation with wisdom and mercy and knowledge, Paul now wants us to glory in God's ways. So we go from God's will to God's ways. Look at number two. God's ways in saving the undeserving are untraceable. So God's will is unfathomable, mind-blown. Now... How he works that out in people's lives and in history, that is untraceable. In other words, you'll never connect the dots of how God saves sinners. And for some of you, that bugs you. Okay? The person, how many people here always want to know the answer to why? 
and we'll yeah, yeah, join me, join me. Yes. Well, bad news for you, okay, and for me. You can't trace and you can't connect the dots. God's ways are untraceable. Look at the end of verse 33. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable all are his ways. And here's what I want you to see. God's judgments is his decision making in eternity. Because God planned this all out before the world was even created, before you were born, before Adam sinned. God's judgments is His sovereign purposes. Does that make sense? In eternity past. You think we're going to be able to figure that out? I wasn't even around. Okay, His ways are His saving... It's his saving plan in history. It's how he applied his decisions in history. So he made decisions in eternity, and then he began to play those out in history. And the bottom line is, it's all untraceable. So let's take a look at it. Again, we're still focusing on him. And so we should say in our heart, Oh my God! The judgments of your sovereign purposes in eternity are unsearchable. They are unsearchable. And there's so many verses on this. This, These are all quotes coming from the Old Testament. My only point is, if God, with His sovereign knowledge, majestic knowledge, has made decisions on salvation back in eternity before we ever existed... We're not going to be able to figure that out. We are limited to what he reveals to us in this book. So the moment you move beyond the book and start speculating, philosophizing, you have gone beyond what we should do. Okay? Secondly, oh my God, the ways of your saving plan in history are untraceable. Have you ever had, I I mean, I'm sure you have, I mean, I I, I have. Have you ever asked questions like, God, how in the world did I ever get saved? Have you ever looked at people and said, God, what were you thinking when you saved them? Right? Have you ever went to a funeral of someone who, for all human knowledge and purposes you know, entered into a Christless eternity of everlasting suffering and asked yourself, God, why did you allow that to happen? Why do you allow infants to die? Why are some saved and others not? Well, you can't help but ask those questions. But God is answering them for you in Scripture, and He's saying very clear, the answer to all those questions, apart from the five solas, apart from grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, the answer to all of that is, my ways are untraced. You cannot connect the dots. 
Some of us need to quit trying to connect dots and start proclaiming more gospel. Some of us need to quit arguing with God and to be quite frank, as we're going to see in a moment, judging God, questioning God, and just submit to God and say, God, you're merciful, wise, and all-knowing. I'm going to share the gospel because I know you've told me to do that. Amen? And you know why we ought to be bold in sharing the gospel? Because there's a God who has planned this out and is playing this out, and we have a part to play in it, and it's through sharing and loving and reaching the lost. Isn't that good? It doesn't all depend on me. I don't have to have the right words, but I need words. I don't have to do the right things, but I need to do something, right? Isn't that good? Because evangelism, everybody's paralyzed by fear because we feel it all depends on us and it all depends on that person. But when you understand that his judgments are unsearchable and his ways are untraceable, then you start realizing, oh, and he's rich in mercy. I'm just going to go and let God do his thing. Amen? All right. Now, don't go postmodern on this. Postmodern say no one can know anything. And so if, Paul, if all his ways are unsearchable, untraceable, and unfathomable, let's just, let's just not try to figure this out. Well, listen, Paul says all this after 11 chapters of explaining it, okay? So just because we can't know everything doesn't mean we can't know anything. See, we're a people of pendulum swings. Well, if God's mind-blowing, I'm just not going to read it. How many of you have tried to read the Bible, and because it was hard, you quit? Well, you're reading the mind of God. If it was easy, there would be something wrong with God, right? We'd be big, and God would be small. No, God's big, and we're small, and you just work through it. You keep working through it. So, so listen, just because, just because we will never fully understand God's saving purposes and plans, we can begin to appreciate they are that which is unsearchable. We can grow in our appreciation. Have you grown through this series, I hope, in your appreciation of the unsearchable riches, wisdom, and knowledge of God? Second, I don't want you to go pragmatic on this. Uh, Tim and I, we've talked about, he's got a preacher friend that's preaching through Romans right now. Tim goes, great. And anytime you know a preacher's preaching through Romans and you're a preacher, you're going to want to ask him, what are you going to do with Romans 9 through 11? And this preacher happened to say, well, I'm just going to, he's doing, you know, he's going through it slowly, slowly, 9 through 11. I'm going to do that in one message. Why? Because we think it's impractical. We think it's difficult. It's hard. It's uncomfortable. I mean, I know preachers that have preached through Romans and the 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 church doesn't even know there's 9 through 11. They just go from 8 to 12. Or you come to this class where we just do 9 through 11. Don't even look at the rest of the book. Look back, Jerry. It was 29 weeks. It was good, though. It was good. Well, we cannot fully understand how God has done everything, but we can begin to apply what we know of the untraceable. Listen, 
You should grow in your appreciation of what is unsearchable, and you should grow in your application of what is untraceable and find your place in God's plan. I don't have to understand everything. I know the one who does, right? Amen? But listen, don't be a lazy Christian. And don't be an ignorant one. Open your Bibles, study the hard things, understand what you can, and then come back to it. And then study it some more, and study it some more. I've walked with the Lord now long enough to know... Every day you read the Bible, it builds into you something that you will draw from later in life. And when you don't put... It's just like retirement. If you don't put money in the bank, there's nothing to draw in your later years. And if you don't instill God's wisdom in your heart and life on a weekly, daily basis, as you get older and life gets harder, you won't have any wisdom to draw from. And that leads us then to this, God's worthiness. We should glory in God's will. We should glory in God's ways. And third, we should glory in God's worthiness in saving the undeserving because it's unmatchable. Unmatchable. And indeed, that is a word. Incapable of being matched, equaled, or rivaled. Listen, God is worthy and we are not. That's the whole idea here. God is great and we are small. He is worthy and we are unworthy. And the way, the, the, the idea here is this. If you wanted to work, I mean, here's the essence, here's the outline for all worship. God's awesome and we're not. To you be the glory. God's awesome, we're not. To you be the glory. God is great. We are small. To you be the glory. And so, to drive home God's worthiness and our unworthiness, Paul asks three questions. So, let's look at these questions quickly. First of all, the first question is, and, and these, are, these really aren't questions that need application. You just, if you'll just slow yourself down and just... Ask them of yourself. The application is clear. So before each of these questions, you want to put, who am I? Who am I? Do I really think I can outthink God and figure out His mind? Do I really think I can outthink God and figure out His mind? For who has known the mind of the Lord? Remember, it's sovereign knowledge. He's going to go back through. He's basically working back through what He's already said. He's like, look, God's knowledge is too great. But here's the good news. That by grace, God has given us the mind of Christ. We can think God's thoughts after Him. But we have to submit ourselves to Him and submit to what we read in Scripture and not what we think or hear or come up with on our own. Who am I in the light of the majesty of God's knowledge? I am no one. I must admit that I'm spiritually ignorant. Listen, the only reason I can teach this lesson and you can even comprehend anything in it is the grace of God to explain it to us in Scripture and give us the mind of Christ. Question two, who am I? Do I really think I can outmaneuver God and give Him advice? God, I've been thinking. And this salvation thing that you're pulling off, I've got some suggestions for you. Hell is too hot. Your wrath is too great. 
Eternity is too long to judge people. I have some adjustments to make. And you know you've fallen into this this trap when you hear yourself or you hear others say, I can't believe in a God who would do this. And that is very common. It's common in pulpits. It's common in pews. It's common among the lost. It's common, common, sadly, among the saved. I can't believe in a God who would send my aunt to eternal damnation. I can't worship a God who would let people who have never heard the gospel still go to hell. I can't believe it. It just it, it on and on and on it goes. But here's what Scripture says. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor? Who do I think I am to advise God on who to save, how to save them? Who am I to think I know better than who should be in heaven and who should be in hell? Who am I to say who gets second chances and who does not? Who am I to say that God's wrath should be temporary, not eternal? Who am I to think that I can come up with a better plan of salvation than the one revealed in the gospel, centered in Christ and on His cross? Who am I in light of the mystery of God's wisdom? Who am I? And then the third question. Who am I... Do I really think I can outgive God and make him my debtor? And he says this in the last question Who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? Who am I to think that I could go before God and say, God, I'm good enough, you owe me? Who am I to think that I'm good enough to say, Here, God, look at these good works I've done? You ought to let me into, my, into your heaven. Who am I to think that God owes me anything other than eternal condemnation? The reality is this. Who am I in light of the riches of His mercy? And so it comes down to this. God's worship. It all comes down to this. God's worship for saving the deserving is unbeatable there's only one conclusion to all of this and look at verse 36 for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever amen and so in front of each of these points you want to think to god be the glory why for all things are from god he's the source of all things all things are from him to god be the glory For all things are through Him. He is the sustainer of all things. He not only created all things, but He keeps it going. He sustains it. And thirdly, to God be the glory for all things are for God. He is sovereign over all things. He is the source. He is the sustainer. He is the sovereign. And so what's the only response we should say? Look at the end of verse 36. To Him, to Him, to Him be the glory forever. Amen. And so here's how it ends. We should delight in giving God the glory that He deserves. The the glory He deserves is in the first part of that phrase, to Him be the glory forever. Our delight is when we say, Amen. Amen. Let it be. 
So let me encourage you, as you apply the five solas in your life, let me encourage you to delight in giving God the glory that He alone deserves. Now, as I was thinking through this, and I have this at the bottom of your notes, and you'll just have to think through this. Do it in every part of your life. The whatsoever of God's glory. Do all to the glory of God. But also think about the whomsoever, whosoever of God's glory. And share this good news with everyone. You say, well, how do I know if God wants to save them? Well, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Ours is not to determine what God is going to do. Ours is to do what God has declared for us to do, and that is to share the gospel with abundance. Just just throw the seed out there. The problem is we're hoarding it and keeping it in the barn. And you'll never have a harvest, right, farmers? Never have a harvest if the seed stays in the barn. You'll never see your friends, co-workers come to Christ if you keep the gospel hidden. It has to be shared. Wow. And I just end with this quote by David Platt. What drives passion for getting the gospel to all people is not guilt. It's glory. It's the glory of God. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, we come. And we're thankful. What a, what a study this has been, Lord. It's been challenging. It's been convicting. It's been refreshing. And Lord, it's led to worship. And I pray for each person here this Christmas, they would think again about the glory of God. They would place themselves with the shepherds. And again, think about the glory of your grace in Christ, by faith, according to the Scriptures, and saying glory to God in the highest, and peace on earth with those people who have received His grace in the gospel. Lord, we are those people. May we rejoice even in trials. May we not despair when facing the death of a loved one. And may we not let sin rule our lives, for grace, superabounding grace, reigns over us and reigns over death for your glory and for our good. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. This is end of new life for the 2017 year. Next week, we have one service, Christmas Eve. Spend Christmas Eve morning hearing the gospel here at LifeBridge.